Good morning once again, everybody. My name's Alan. Uh, So good to be with you. 500 years ago, it was understood that Martin Luther sat down and was overheard at a dinner conversation. This is important because it wasn't some big grand public statement. He was, he was simply overheard in a dinner conversation, and he said something like, hey, did you guys, you guys hear about this, this guy who, who says that, that the earth revolves around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth? Have you guys heard about this guy? <laughs> And people just think they're so clever, don't they? People are just trying to get attention in so many different ways. And and I tell you what I believe. I believe the scriptures where Joshua said that he prayed that the sun would stand still. He didn't pray that the earth would stand still, that the sun would stand still. Can you pass the sauerkraut? That's, that, is, that is kind of my paraphrase, paraphrase of what was overheard that Martin Luther had said. He was talking about Copernicus, who was a highly educated leader in the church who was having some new ideas about astronomy. Now, just a few decades later, within that same century, in fact, a guy named Galileo entered into the picture. Galileo was also a highly educated man of faith. And he is actually referred to, now 500 years later, we look back and many refer to Galileo as the father of modern science. And there was one point later on in his life where he was saying, you know, you know that Copernicus guy? Well, he's actually right. He's actually right that that the sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. And the church at the time did not like that Galileo, who was a very well-known, very intelligent guy, was making this proclamation. Because this goes against a number of verses that we kind of read and understand from the Old Testament in terms of how the world works and how the planets work. And so the church branded Galileo a fool and a heretic. They branded him a heretic, even though he was a man of faith and just trying to figure out what was going on around him. Now, these stories are often referred to as people talk about science and faith wrestling. Because this was an early part of them starting to wrestle, of science and faith starting to wrestle. That here we have the emergence of science, and then we have the foolish church stepping in and and telling Galileo that he's wrong, etc. And so there's many will look back on the, at those moments and say, you know, that was a significant part of this journey, this battle between science and faith, a battle that has gone on for 500 years, science versus faith. And it's a battle that is still going on. Now, I just read an article recently from the New York Times. It was written by an atheist. And this atheist, as a part of his article, was quoting an ant scientist, a scientist who's known for having a great understanding of ants. His name is Dr. Wilson. And here's what Dr. Wilson said. And in the article, it quoted him saying, for the sake of human progress, the best thing we could possibly do would be to diminish to the point of eliminating religious faiths. 
Now, the atheist who was quoting Wilson in this article was actually disagreeing with Wilson. The atheist was saying, now, it's, it's true that, that it's absolutely true that religious, that religious faith is wrong, that it is not true, but there is some scientific evidence that says people who have faith can actually, it can actually help their brain chemistry for those who are weak and need something like that. Wasn't that nice of the atheist to offer that up for those of us who have faith? Faith says that human beings, you and I, were created in the image of God. Whereas an atheist says that God was created in the image of human beings. How did science and faith head off in such opposite directions? How did they, how has it come now, 500 years later, that we are still battling so much between science and faith? Can they coexist better than what this article was representing? That's, That's what we're talking about here today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray for something supernatural to happen in this room. We we are so limited by our own thinking, by our own rational minds. We are so limited. We, We hold off so many of the beautiful things that you have for us. And I pray, God, that something supernatural happens here in this room. Something supernatural happens for any who are listening, any who are watching God, that there, was, there would be something beyond our own abilities because we long for that. We long to, to be reminded regularly. We long to be reminded right here in this room that there is something more to life than what we can touch and what we can explain. God, would you meet us in a supernatural way right here beyond my words, beyond our own abilities? Would you meet us in a supernatural way, we pray. Amen. Can anybody resonate with that prayer? I just, we just want to see God. We just want to have an encounter with a, with a God that's beyond our own understanding. We're in this series called We Didn't Start the Fire. And the whole idea is that we are looking at 2,000 years of church history. That it has never been our job for, throughout those 2,000 years to start the fire. Jesus did that. He started a revolution of love. But it has been our job to keep the fire going. And the church has made many mistakes and has made many courageous and wonderful things uh, along the journey. What we've been doing, if you're new with us, what we've been doing in this, uh, so far we're in week four of a five-week series, and we have rewritten the words from Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire, from the 80s. So each week we are looking at a different verse that connects with the section of history that we're looking at. And so here is verse four. Burn it since the world's been 
You only have to tolerate one more week, just one more week of that song, and then we'll move on. Well, the section that we're looking at today is the period between 1600 and 1900. It's the period between the Protestant Reformation that we talked about last Sunday, which, which happened in the 16th century. It's, it's the period between that and about 100 years ago. And so it is this, it is this, it is this section of time where, where really this was the development of science. Before 1600, there really wasn't anything called science. That the science didn't exist as we understand it now. That people, yes, for thousands of years have been trying to understand the world around them, but the, the whole idea, the concept, the, the educational area of science didn't really exist. That the greatest thinkers of the time, up until 1600, the most educated, uh, the greatest uh, uh, leaders, the most influential people were all theologians. That, that really the highest level of education was theology, and then there was everything else. And so what we have here in this period between 1600 and 1900 is, is the emergence of science. Some refer to it as the age of enlightenment. That it is a period where more and more people are getting educated because uh, 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 universities and schools are building up around Europe and really around the world. More and more people are getting educated. More and more people are saying, I don't want to just be told what to think or what to believe by the kings and by the clergy. More and more people are getting enlightened. This is the period where Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. That there was this philosophy, that, that this the whole thing, I have the ability to think, and I need to, I need to think, not just embrace what others are telling me. It was in this period where a group of people in the American colonies said, we want to do something different. And so we are willing to fight, we are willing to risk it all for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And right on the heels of that, directly after that, there was a revolution in France where they were doing a similar kind of thing, saying, we want egalité, fraternité, and, and something else, te. There's another French word. But they were saying the same thing, that we want, we, 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 are, we want to revolt against all that we are told. We want independence with this. It was the explosion of thinking. The period between 1600 and 1900 is also referred to as the scientific revolution. It was this same period this is where science started and grew and became what it is now. In the 17th and 18th century, it was the emergence of, of um, physical science. And this is where early on, this is where Galileo was exploring the, the uh, astronomy, etc. And this is where Sir Isaac Newton was exploring the laws of physics and trying to explain how things bump into each other and how things work. It was the ex exploration of the physical sciences, 17th and 18th century. And then in the 19th century, we have both the exploration of biological sciences. This is where Charles Darwin started to ask questions that people hadn't been asking and wrote the origin of the species and started to think differently about the world around us. This is also where Karl Marx was exploring ideas of communism and wrote that religion is the opium of the masses. And in other words, that 
as, as he and so many others in, this, in the growing scientific world were saying, this whole religion stuff, it is really just sedating us from truly entering into and exploring the world around us. It's sedating us from really understanding and pursuing science, from pursuing uh, what's going on around us. It was this explosion of science. And so as a result, it, the, the world in many ways shifted from, from viewing the world as God's creation to viewing the world as a mystery that we need to solve. The world is now how things work and how things function and how we relate to each other. Everything is now a mystery that we need to use scientific methods in order to figure out. The highest level of education in, the, in, the, in 1600 was theology. The, those were the, the greatest thinkers, the brightest minds in the world were the theologians. By 1900, and certainly now, now, now today, the, the highest level of education are the sciences. It's, it's all the different ways that we can explore how things work, how things function around us. There's a tremendous shift that happened between 1600 and 1900. Now, before this shift throughout those centuries, in fact, centuries before Jesus, we had access and still have access to a writing that I want to take a look at from the book of Psalms. Thousands of years earlier, uh, 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 one of the Psalms writes in Psalm 94, Here's where we want to spend our time here this morning. Beginning in verse 8. Psalm 94, verse 8. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? The writer says, take notice of the world around you. Take notice of, of God's creation around you. It was never God's intention for us to just shut off our brains and stop asking questions. It was never God's intention. God was never afraid of science. So, so many, many centuries before that, it was take notice of what was going on around you. Engage. That these, these early scientists, these first scientists in the 17th century, they were men of faith. They weren't anti-faith. It wasn't science versus revelation, or it wasn't science versus faith. It was a group of people wanting to explore and, and fully experience what God has created. Here's the point for today. The more we understand something, the more we appreciate it. And here's where science and faith mix beautifully. The more we understand something, the more we appreciate it. When I was in high school, I listened to, I don't know what, what, who, who your bands were, who your music was when you were in high school, whatever era that was. But for me, when I was in high school, I listened to Paul Simon and Glass Tiger and Rat. Okay, that was, a, that was just a great combination, among many other things. But then I, I, I entered college, and I, I think it's reasonable to assume, based on my listening repertoire, that I, I, was, I was not all that familiar with, with classical music. I was not a high appreciator of classical music. Rat and classical music, they don't kind of share a lot of stories together. 
And so when I was in college, I, I was uh, in a choir. It was a, it was a big school and it was a big choir and it was a it was a tremendous experience for me and we were uh, when I was in the first year of, uh, of university we were learning Mozart's Requiem and not just a part of it we were learning the whole thing the entire movement of Mozart's Requiem and this was way outside of my experience my taste etc and we it was it was pretty exciting because we we were teaming up with uh, with another uh, professional choir and there were some professional soloists from Europe who were coming and the whole thing was moving towards a concert with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and we were playing at the Jubilee Auditorium which is the center for performing arts in the city and everyone was dressing up in tuxedos and coming to this event and we were doing the the entire Mozart's Requiem it was really quite magnificent now. Do you think as a result of that, that I started to listen to a little bit of classical music? No. I still listen to Paul Simon and Glass Tiger and Rat, but I did have an appreciation for Mozart's Requiem. It's not that I started to listen to all sorts of classical music, but when I heard Mozart's Requiem, I go, I know that. There are eight vocal parts to Mozart's Requiem, and I learned one of them. That was my part. I was a second tenor, and so I had to learn that piece there, and I learned it. And so when I hear that, I know it. The, the more I understand something, the more likely I am to appreciate it. If I hadn't learned it, I would have just, you know, skipped over to the next channel if, if Mozart's Requiem was played somewhere. The more you understand a sport, the more you can appreciate what the athletes are doing. How often do we look at a sport that we don't understand very much, and we just go, yeah, I don't... I can't appreciate anything. I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. The more you understand maybe a story behind an athlete. You know, in the Olympics, what, what are we most drawn to? It's the stories behind the athletes. So then, then, then it's all moving up towards the 100 dash, the 100-meter race. And we go, I know those people. I understand what, all of the work they did in order to get to that place. The more you understand behind the scenes of a, of a favorite movie and you understand how they did something and you can appreciate all that was happening behind the scenes there, the more you understand something, the more you appreciate it. And that's what science is supposed to do. Science is, is not supposed to steer us away from God. It's supposed to fuel our passion for God. Science is supposed to be a way to, to understand and appreciate what God has created. Look at the, the next verse here. Verse 9, he says, does he who fashioned the ear not hear? So there's just a reminder. God made the ear. Do you understand how the ear works? Some of you understand it more than I do, but let me just kind of give you a basic piece. We hear sound, and it travels as waves into our, into our eardrum, and it makes the eardrum vibrate, and it goes through the middle ear, and then it goes into the inner ear where there are over 15,000 hair cells in a liquid that are all receiving these signals and then sending a signal to the brain, 15,000 hair cells acknowledging all sorts of different sounds and tones so that all at the same time, we can hear all sorts of different volumes and tones and nuances like when we listen to Mozart's Requiem. We can listen to all of that. The more we understand the ear, the more we can appreciate the one who made it. And then the writer says in the next line, does he who formed the eye 
not see. If you're impressed by the ear, you should be blown away by the eye. The eye is the second most complex organ in the human body next to the brain. The eye takes in light through the pupil. The light goes into the eye and it gets focused and and blasted onto the back of the eye, which is the retina. And it's like, a, it's like a, a movie screen on the back of the eye that takes all of that information and creates an image on the back of the eye. And that image is upside down. And the brain has to flip it right side up. Right now, what you are looking at is me standing here upside down. That's what your eye sees. And your brain has the ability to flip the image back around. They say that two eyes are better than one which is absolutely true because that's where depth perception happens. We have two eyes so that the brain that takes in tremendous amount of information from each eye, it then compares that information to determine how far away you are versus how far away you are. It's the two eyes and and the complex amount of information that the brain takes in all the time in order to make those adjustments, etc., The signals from the eye to the brain are transferred through over a million nerve fibers. A million nerve fibers. What that means is that we cannot do an eye transplant. No one has ever done an eye transplant. We can replace parts of the eye, but no one has been able to reconnect the million nerve fibers that it takes for the eye to communicate the message to the brain. The more we understand the eye, the more we can appreciate the one who made it. And that's the purpose of science. The writer goes on. He says, does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? God created everything. And he did it with order. God did not create chaos. Didn't just throw a bunch of things in the middle and say, hey, you guys figure it all out. That that God from the very beginning, he disciplines nations. He teaches mankind. He provided us with universal laws. We all know that we're supposed to be kind to one another. We all know we're supposed to love one another. We all know that that it is not right to steal from other people. It does, it's not right to murder other people for your own gain, all, all those kind of things. It's, it's just not right to do that stuff. It doesn't matter what you believe, what your background was, what country you were born in, whatever your faith background was. We know that stuff to be true because it is, it is universal law. It is just the way humans have been created. And if there's a law, there's a lawgiver. This is the order that that, that our creator has done. If there's a law, then there's some being who created that law. In the early exploration of science, as I said, these, these guys were men of faith. It wasn't science versus faith. What, what they were doing, when they talked about the laws of physics or the laws of nature, it was rooted in the assumption of an intelligent design. When they talked about these things, it was rooted in an assumption that there is a God, there is an intelligent designer. Where there are laws, 
there's a lawgiver. Many have said in this battle of faith versus science, as I've, you know, read some of this stuff recently and been reminded of some of this stuff, it's been said that, that faith has gotten in the way of science, that what was beautiful about the Enlightenment was that it was finally a way to get faith out of the way so that science could flourish, that science was held back by faith. And that's just, that's just ridiculous. Science exists because of faith. <laughs> the whole idea of trying to, trying to um, understand the world around us, that, that exists because of faith. Faith didn't get in the way of science. It'd be like, try to, try to follow me with, with me on this one. I tried to think of an example. It would be like Bollywood producers saying that Hollywood has gotten in the way of cinematic creativity in India. Anybody? I don't, is, anybody is there anybody tracking with me here? Okay, that's, that's, just, that's just my way of trying to paint a picture for you. The, no, that's not true. That's, that just can't be true. Bollywood exists because of Hollywood. Hollywood wasn't getting in the way of, of Bollywood. Bollywood exists because of Hollywood in the same way. Science exists because of faith. Faith wasn't getting in the way. Science exists because of faith. And the more we understand something, which is the pursuit of science and asking questions and answering those questions, the more we appreciate it. The more we understand something, the more we appreciate it. We're looking at Psalm 94, and just as a reminder, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament is a, a, a song book. It's a worship book. And so Psalm 94 is a song. What we're looking at in verses 8 through 11 is a verse from the song. It's a section of this song. And this section ends in verse 11. The Lord knows all human plans. He knows that they are futile. It's kind of a harsh ending to this to this song. But it seems to me that what the writer's saying here is that, is that really when it comes to our vast knowledge of the world around us and even all that we could ever learn, we don't know nothing. We don't know anything. It's this word that the writer uses, the word futile, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's the same word that the writer uses in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer says, I have explored all sorts of pleasures. I have explored all sorts of wisdom, and it is all futile. It is all meaningless. It is chasing after the wind. In other words, we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. There is so much more that we don't understand. That, yes, we're brilliant because of the Enlightenment. It, we, are, we are so Brilliant. What, what you know as, as, as medical professionals and as engineers and as scientists, what you know and understand and do on a weekly basis and what you have been working on and, 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 and our computer designs and all, it is, it is amazing. But it is nothing compared to what God has fully created. There's more that we don't know than what we do know. Do you know how much of the brain that scientists say they understand? It's about 10% of our brain. You know, people say we only use 10% of our brain. What that really means is we only understand 10% of our brain. We don't even understand most of what the brain 
the main organ in the human body does. You know how much of the oceans that we've explored? They're just right there. You know how much of them we've explored? Maybe 5%. You know how much men understand women? I rest my case. There is so much that we walk around, we think we're so smart, we're so enlightened, we've figured everything out, but there's so much more that our God has for us. It should be all the more reason that we continue to explore, we continue to research, we continue to ask questions, we continue to pursue and celebrate science because science shouldn't steer us away from God, it should steer us toward God. Because the more we understand something, the more we appreciate it. If you want to appreciate people in your life, if you want to care to love people in your life, people at work, people in your family that maybe you struggle with or whatever, the best thing you can do is understand them. Just don't impress them. Understand them. Ask them questions as to, you know, what's going on. If you want to appreciate your spouse, if you want to, to rekindle the, the fire that used to be in your marriage and, and, and you're going to take re-engage, you're going to do the marriage Monday thing, you're going to do that for sure. But a part of that whole journey is understanding that person. Because when we understand someone, we appreciate them. It means understanding why every time she is with your family, she starts to have these little twitches and she's just, she gets so nervous and it's so difficult for her to be with your family. Why is that? The more you understand that, the more you can appreciate what's going on. Wives, do you understand why your husband is obsessed with football? Why he got so upset on Thursday night? Do, do you understand? When we do that, we understand instead of just writing somebody off as being weak or being lazy or being immature, that we pursue that person. We say, I want to understand your heart. I want to understand what's going on. I want to understand why this is difficult for you. Because the more we understand someone, the more we appreciate them. If you want to connect more deeply with your God in heaven, the beginning of this verse, the very first words here in verse 8 said, take notice. Take notice of what God's doing. I know life is hard for many of us right now. Life is hard for you at home. Many of you want to be here. And there's so many things that have, that have been changed and flipped upside down here in 2020. Life is hard. But take notice of God's creation around you. I walked into church today. As I was walking up, I looked up at the, the, the tower. And at the very top of the tower, there was a hawk just sitting up there looking over his dominion. And it was awesome. Take notice of the gift God has given you in his creation. Take notice of his laws that are not here to hold you back. They're here to love you and protect you and bring you freedom. If you want to connect more deeply with God, take notice of his activity in your life. Take notice of, of that that the timing of that text that you received or that phone call or somebody stopping by your house or the words that came from somebody else. And you go, how did you know? As you experience the supernatural, you can either just kind of blow it on by and miss it or you can take notice of it. And it can dramatically affect your relationship with your creator because the more we understand him, 
the more we appreciate him. The more we understand one another, the more we appreciate one another. That's what science is for. And it should fuel our faith, not be in opposition to it. Would you bow your heads? Father, I, I know that um, many here in this room, many here watching, listening, have a, a scientific mind, have a thinking mind that perhaps struggles with some of the irrationality of, of you and your story and the way some people respond to you. But Father, I pray that you would use our desire for information, our desire for science, our desire to understand what's going on around us as a way to appreciate you more, as a way to appreciate one another more. Would you do something supernatural in our lives to show us that your creation is drawing us to you, not pushing us away from you, God? Would you, we invite you to do something beautiful with the world that you've created so that we can connect deeply with you. In the name of your son, we pray.